Okay, everybody, in the interest of time, we're going to get rolling here. Um, thank you all for coming. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Seth Koenig. Seth's come down from uh, Long Island Jewish uh, Hospital, where he serves as the uh, medical director for the medical ICU. He um, is a professor there um, in, at, Nor at Hofstra, which is affiliated with LIJ. Um, he is uh, the director of the Acute Lung Injury Center at Northwell as well, and has, uh, has a, a new ECMO program that's uh, growing at a rapid pace. And um, so we're lucky enough to have him down here uh, to discuss ECMO with us off the recording, but, all, but uh, ultrasound while on. Um, Seth is the, he's won awards from American College of Chest Physicians, for his uh, significant efforts in uh, the field of, of critical care ultrasound. He runs multiple ACCP courses on ultrasound and okay, on okay, and okay, on okay. and on. Uh, yeah, yeah, You're yeah. the best. Yeah, just, can, can we, <laughs> exactly. I, that's like the worst when people come to announce who you are. It's like, I'm Seth, it's been three weeks since my last drink. And, uh, I don't believe any of that. Yeah, it's true, because last night I had one. Yeah, 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 or more than one, yeah. Uh, well, thank you for tolerating me for an hour. Um, I will probably say things that are not appropriate, uh, provocative, border, bordering on, I don't know, having me, my, myself booted out of here. Uh, I'm pretty passionate about the, the things I do, or at least that's how I define it. Other people define it maybe as being a pain in the ass. Uh, but we do uh, a tremendous amount of um, critical care ultrasound, which I guess is now being you know, more coined appropriately as point of care ultrasound, because it's starting to move you know, certainly outside of ICUs, and it probably started more even in the emergency rooms. I think anybody who's got a heartbeat and is alive and who becomes ill, in my mind, deserves point of care ultrasound. We don't really, most of the fellows don't know where their stethoscopes are anymore. Uh, and the idea that a cardiologist tells you that they hear an Austin Flint murmur and a diastolic rumble is probably bullshit. Um, that's why you just take the echo and you look. Um, so what, uh, again, everybody's been gracious enough for me to come see uh, the ECMO program here. And so I thought I would uh, describe uh, our thoughts on why we believe every ICU should be doing routinely transesophageal echo if not transthoracic echo, uh, and our entire ECMO program, whether it's VAVV, is run entirely off of our transesophageal uh, echoes. Uh, we don't do a lot of other, they're all cannulated under transesophageal echo, and then whatever problems occur subsequent to that, we use pretty much the TEE as our way of following these problems. So I thought most of it will just be on what is the utility of it in a general ICU, and then some of it will be looking at specifically how do we use it for a cannulation of patients who require uh, different forms of support, and then also how do you use it uh, in the management of problems uh, that occur. Uh, I told the fellows yesterday that you have to jump up and down and scream at your programs because um, you're going to be left behind if you don't start doing transesophageal echo. It's the same way that it was with transthoracic echo and general ultrasound in ICUs. It used to be the case that nobody had them in their ICUs. Now everybody has ultrasound in their ICUs. Um, to me, 
um, just taking good care of a patient means at the least you have to know what's wrong. So you should use your technology that allows you to at least tell you what's wrong, and then you use your brain to figure out how to fix it. Uh, I always tell people, and if you're, if you're a moron, then you're a moron with an ultrasound. It doesn't make you a better doctor, nor should it try to make you a better doctor. You need to be a good clinical provider. It doesn't matter what kind of clinical provider you are, but a good clinical provider, given the right tools, becomes a better clinical provider, not because of their brains, but simply because you have the data in front of you. So having said that, you know, what I'll tell you what we think the utility of transesophageal echo in the ICU, why would we do it? How do you perform it? Is it hard to learn? Is it safe? These are all the questions that uh, the cardiologists like to point out when they say, how could you do TEE? I can give you our experience, our training paradigm for all of the fellows uh, that uh, learn. Shame the attendings who don't believe in it. Uh, I think I tried to shame your attending yesterday on that. Excite the fellows, because this is you're the ones when I need my TEE. Hopefully, you'll have figured out how to do it. And then uh, some case examples. I sort of you know, bring this up at the beginning because the ABIM tells us and the ACGME tells us what folks in critical care are supposed to know. Uh, they're supposed to know uh, how to do airway management and endotracheal intubation, which I would say is a much more dangerous skill than transesophageal echo. But you've got to know how to do it. None of your programs are going to say, well, you know, I don't know. We should. You've got to know how to do it. So, it's dangerous. It's a pretty much a very, it's a much harder skill to master. Fellows must know it. Placement of arterial lines, central venous lines. Some people still put in this balloon, pulmonary artery balloon flotation catheters. Um, we use them every now and then for, at the tip, it's got a sensor for temperature, so we will put them in people's butts uh, to get accurate temperatures. That's about the only thing we use pulmonary artery catheters for. Having said that, we do use them for our pulmonary hypertension patients. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they're, in those cases, they're very helpful. A ventilator management, I would say, is much more complicated than transesophageal echo. I mean, you got to know how to use a ventilator. They just seem to let you use that, right? So if that's much more, you could kill somebody in a matter of minutes with a ventilator. So the idea that you shouldn't do TEE is silly. And then people are always like, so calibration and operation of hemodynamic recording systems. People put swans in all the time. They're not even calibrated correctly. You go and you look, and nobody knows how to get this cardiac index thing and blowing up the balloon for a wedge pressure. So then which one is the best? And you know, that's really all we're saying, right? Well, all you want to ever do in medicine is to constantly reevaluate your technology, because maybe in 10 years from now, this will also be nonsense. Maybe the, the, finally the Star Trek tricorder will come out, and you'll just put it up to somebody, and it'll make a noise and tell you what's wrong. But right now, seeing is believing. So if you can see what the heart is doing in relationship to the rest of the body, it just seems to make sense. And so echo seems to be a very good way of doing that in a person who's in cardiopulmonary distress. And so, you know, always people, some of, the, some of the people like to tell me, well, has it ever been proven that echo saves a person's life, transesophageal echo? No, but neither ventilators haven't been proven to save people's lives. CT scans haven't been proven to save people's lives. We just hold these truths to be self-evident. If you understand the shock state, you know how to treat the shock state. 
If you diagnose a life-threatening disease immediately, maybe that's better than if it took three hours to do it. And patient hemodynamic profiles change constantly. We see people who come in, and they had an echo yesterday, which was completely normal. And so the person will say, well, the echo's normal. And then we look, and it's completely abnormal 12 hours later. And then 24 hours later, it could be back to normal. It's incredible how quickly these things change. If you've never watched somebody go into mitral regurgitation pulmonary edema from having a blood pressure of 220, and then you drop the blood pressure to 120, and the MR almost goes away completely, you're like, well, I guess it depends on who did the echo when. Because someone may say there's severe MR, but now when you look, there's practically no MR. So these things change all the time. And so that's why we want to get our data at the time that the person feels uncomfortable. It's like when I see outpatients who complain of shortness of breath when they are exercising, and all we do is talk to them in the room while they're sitting. I always take them and run them up and down my stairs because that's when they're short of breath. So you want to do an echo when the patient's actually in shock, not when they were OK a couple days ago. So what about transthoracic echo? It really, 70 80% of the time, likely you can get your answer if you use it. Now, I'm curious. Raise your hands as a fellow here. How many times a new patient who's in shock, the first thing you do after you get the physical and history is do an echo? So, so few of you. All right, good. And you do it yourself? Good. That's exactly what, what it's so much more than it used to be in the past. So you're already have drinking some of the Kool-Aid. So the next thing is, how does a TE work? If we've decided that seeing the heart is important, and if you can't see the heart 20% of the time, 30% of the time, that it's probably a good idea to see it, well then, how does the TE work? And I will tell you, TEE is much easier to perform than transthoracic echo because the esophagus really holds on to the probe so well that the manipulations you make are easier to see. The difference is, is that when you use a TEE as opposed to a transthoracic, for a transthoracic you're rotating things around. Here, you can actually hit a button that's going to rotate the transducer for you. And so there are different things you can do. You can have flexion, retroflexion. You can have lateral movement. You can rotate the thing. So the same idea occurs. We have to have a common language. Like when we do transthoracic, if I tell somebody you need to angle, then they know what that means. Or tilt, or rotate, or move the transducer. It's the same thing when you're trying to talk about a transesophageal echo, I may say you need to change the beam angle to 90 degrees, which would be akin to somebody turning the probe 90 degrees. So it's just the nomenclature that we need uh, to do. This is your parasternal long axis. Everybody probably knows what that view is, right? On the chest, you get to see the left ventricle, left atrium, the outflow tract, the right ventricle, the pericardial effusion, the aorta. Well, you can see the same thing via transesophageal echo, it's just going to have a different beam path. Here, the beam path comes through the chest anteriorly. When you're inside the esophagus, it beam path comes out. It shoots out. So it's just a little bit different. And these are the planes. So you may be at zero degrees here. 
Then you turn it 90 degrees and it cuts the heart this way, and then you go to 180 degrees and now it's just backwards. So this is the same idea as you turning the transducer on your uh, chest when you have it on the chest. And so how does it work? So in, in chest, we have a series called Better With Ultrasound. And one of the things that we did was how do you do a transesophageal uh, echo? Let me see if it'll play, just to give you a sense of, of oh, here yeah, you go. Advanced transducer so, into the esophagus will pass some great vessels in the short axis. And once the heart appears on the screen, we'll now know we're in the mid-esophagus. So you see he's point, putting it in. The mid-esophageal four-chamber view, we find ourselves in, by default, with a multi-beam position of zero degrees and the structures of interest on the screen being the right atrium, the right ventricle, the left atrium and left ventricle, and the mitral valve as well as your cuspidum. So again, I put that there because this series exists and a lot of times people will start doing it while they have that video playing to see how to manipulate uh, the transducer. In 2015, we put out a statement on what we would consider critical care transesophageal echo with all of the videos that accompany just like the one you saw. So there's data that is accumulating both on how to do it and then why we should do it. One of our friends that we teach with, uh, one of these French guys here, uh, we put, put out 10 reasons to perform hemodynamic monitoring using transesophageal echo. We're pretty far behind in the United States. So in Europe, a lot of the centers, like at their center, they have about eight TE probes. They usually hang in each of the rooms of the patients, just like having a mechanical ventilator. And literally, when they go in and they're going to do something, they just put the TE probe in, they do what they're going to do, and then they pull the TE probe out, somebody cleans it, and then it's hung back on the wall so that they can go back to looking at it again. They almost never do any other invasive hemodynamic monitoring except for TE. So if you consider the TE probe, here's the esophagus. And depending upon how far you put the transducer in, when the beam comes out, you're just going to be able to see different parts of the heart. It's the same thing with transthoracic, right? If you, if you remember that the beam comes out of a transthoracic, and as you move it, the beam moves with you, and you see different parts of the heart. So reason one, they say, is that TE provides a unique window to the heart and the great vessels. I mean, the views you get are you can't challenge them with any other modality. And we'll go through each of these to figure it out. So patients hemodynamically unstable with crushing chest pain, look for a dissection. Patient hemodynamically you know, unstable with pulmonary edema, look for that mitral valve that's blown, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the assumption that the transthoracic isn't giving you the information that you need. Because if a transthoracic gives you the information, there's no need to go on to do something more invasive. So here, T provides unparalleled information on the, me the mechanism of circulatory failure. So if you see here, this is a normal okay, left ventricle, normal right ventricle. The right ventricle is smaller than the left ventricle. You have your valves that are sitting around. And here, just quickly taking a look, you have a massively dilated right atrium. The left ventricle, you can't see that well here, but it's not working so well. So the point is, is that quickly it gives you an idea of what is going on with this patient. And the same way you do transthoracic and learn what's normal, what's abnormal, is by comparing with your eyes. Okay, somebody says this is normal. You base it off of that. 
Okay, and that's how you start to do things. So again, how about here? So you can see in this patient, well, if I go back, it's not playing. Zubair, it's not playing, sweet cakes. So maybe I have to click this one. Okay, here is a nice size clot sitting in the pulmonary artery. This is the aorta. This is the, this is the pulmonary artery. It splits into the right side. That's the pulmonary artery. We had no idea what was wrong with this patient. Patient came in, hemodynamic collapse, intubated, coded, no idea what's wrong with the patient, couldn't get good transthoracic views, put the T probe in, and every once in a while, you get an answer that surprises you, okay? Because this patient did not have a DVT. Again, here it is, sitting up in the right main pulmonary artery. Let's see if this one plays. Yeah, there it is. So the next thing we did was gave the person TPA. And then here it is uh, more clear. So you can see this bad boy. Okay, so there's no denying what's wrong with the patient. Again, patient came in. You all are going to use your clinical judgment. Okay, patient comes in. Chest x-ray doesn't look that bad. They go into a PEA arrest, the EKG doesn't look like they're having a heart attack. You end up intubating them after you get return to spontaneous circulation. They're still a little bit more, uh, you know, hypoxic and hypotensive than you would like. And now you're saying to yourself, what's wrong? So yeah, could you send them to a CTPA? Absolutely. This patient was, you know, at a blood pressure of 60. Nobody wanted to move the patient. So you just put the TE probe in, you see if you can find your answer. Here we got lucky, we found the answer. So. How about a patient like this? A 60-year-old male, shock, liver failure, acute kidney injury, metabolic acidosis, really breathing heavily, not that hypoxic, not that, with not that high, much hypoxemia, okay? So you probably see these patients, right? They're all sorts of effed up, and you don't know what's wrong with them, and people are giving you all different ideas of what's wrong with them. So the ED, cardiology was called poor transthoracic windows. Okay, now what do you do? We were called, we found poor transthoracic windows, but we noticed there was a DVT on the right leg. So now you have somebody in shock, right, with tachypnea, with a DVT, could it be a massive PE, right? Everybody's saying maybe this is a massive PE, but you said, but wait a second, usually people with massive PEs aren't minimally hypoxemic, usually they're very hypoxemic, and, of course, the guy had melanin, history of peptic ulcer disease, and was an active drinker. So I didn't make, you can't make this up. I'm sure you guys see these cases all the time uh, here. So the question was, is this a massive PE? Do we want to give TPA to somebody who has melanin at the moment that they're there? How do you proceed? Can you send the patient for a CT angiogram? The guy, CT, the, the guy was really, really ill. So we did a transesophageal echo. Let's see if it... Uh, plays here. Gotta come back here. So this is the patient. This is what uh, everybody was worried that the patient had a massive PE. This is a patient with a big PE. The right ventricle is big, the right atrium is big, the left ventricle is small here. This was the person's left ventricle and this is the person's right ventricle. You can almost not see it. Let me have it play again. So we're saying to ourselves, it's a DVT, the patient's in shock, it's minimal hypoxemia, the right ventricle's not dilated, so how could this be a massive PE? 
So then we go on and we do our next set of views, saying, all right, well, let's continue to look and see what the volume responsiveness is. And when we turn over to try to find the right atrium and the, and the SVC, we notice there's clot in it. This is clot sitting within that, those chambers. So now we have a patient with a known DVT, a clot in the right atrium, but we're, the RV is small. So now what's going on? So this doesn't make sense. Maybe the right ventricle is being sheltered because the blood can't get from the right atrium to the right ventricle. So we continue our exam and look at the IVC. And if you see right here, this is a humongous clot in the IVC right here. So now we have clots in the IVC, clots in the right atrium, an RV that's not big, a patient's in shock, has melena, you might as well shoot the patient. And so we were trying to figure out what to do next. And so what we did, let me go back, is that we kept, I got the story, we looked, and the patient ended up having a malignancy in the kidney that drove uh, a clot all the way, you've ever seen, you've ever seen renal cell cancer cause a clot that goes from the, all the way up through the IVC into the right atrium. And that's what caused this person's hemodynamic uh, demise. And so I guess the point is, is that if you don't look, you will miss these diagnoses. If you find them, great. If you don't, why stop? Why not use the technology that's there uh, for you? There was nothing special about these views. The fellow did this. Nothing special about the views. All you're trying to do is say to yourself, how do I get my hemodynamic information? So you all understand that if the right ventricle's small and the patient's in shock, even if there's a DVT, it's unlikely that it's a massive obstructive process going on in the parenchyma of the lung, or excuse me, in the pulmonary arteries of the lung. However, this was an interesting case because the patient did have PEs, but the right side was sheltered because it couldn't get blood flow there. The patient ended up dying, uh, but that's not the point. It's a cool case. So. <laughs> so reason three, TEE allows reproducible and sequential hemodynamic assessments. So again, if you have a patient in shock and you don't know why and you're thinking about using an ionotrope because maybe the left ventricle doesn't work so well, well, get the data. So quantitatively and qualitatively is how we do transthoracic echo as well, right? Here, somebody would say, well, the right ventricle's a little big. It's probably bigger than the left ventricle here. The left ventricle's working really well. So, and the interatrial septum's actually bowing into the, this side, so the right atrial pressure is kind of high. So why is the patient in shock? Is it due to right ventricular problems? A lot of people would look at this and say, yeah, maybe the right ventricle's at fault here. Maybe we gotta figure out, should we give dobutamine? Do we have to lice something? Is there something downstream? But then when we actually do quantitative, we see that what's called the VTI, which is your stroke volume, is actually normal, completely normal. So yes, the RV's big. Yes, there's been load on the RV, but right now, the stroke volume's normal. So look for something else. This person was in septic shock, and we learned that the patient had a history of RV dysfunction. So you have to combine the, the, the images, both qualitatively and quantitatively, with the story. You cannot you know, do one without the other. You cannot 
in isolation use ultrasound to help you become a good clinician. You have to be a good clinician and then use the data that you have. TE predicts fluid responsiveness. It's the only thing that's probably out of all the silly things that we do, unless you want to do passive leg raising, which I don't know if you've ever tried to actually do that, or whether you use your pico, lico, seco, bico, all of those monitoring things, or the cheetah, or the lion, or the puma, whatever those things are that do the, ples the plesmography, whatever it is. I mean, we don't really believe in fluid responsiveness anymore unless the patient is uh, you know, dehydrated, but it's really good for telling you if you decide you want uh, to use it. It's, it's best suited. It's uh, best suited to quantitatively assess cardiac function. This is wide open MR in a person who um, had no history of it, couldn't hear it with uh, your stethoscope. And you can quantitatively actually measure the width of this, and actually, as you get better at it, call your cardiologist and say, you know, this guy's vena contracta is eight millimeters. And they'll be like, huh? And so, you know, it's good for, could, could you grab, grab this? It's my friend, John. Um, so, so you can do that. Again, it all depends on what it is you're trying to look at. This is a short axis view of the heart. I think everybody, whether you know transesophageal or transthoracic, would recognize that the heart's hardly moving. Maybe it needs a pacemaker because it seems to stop every once in a while. I think that's just the loop. But again, we check and see. So now it looks terrible. The VTI is 9.56, which is low, very low. So now you have qualitatively terrible LV function, quantitatively very low stroke volume, and if that's the case, and it's the right clinical circumstance, maybe an ionotrope would be helpful, okay? Identify right ventricular dysfunction at the origin of low flow states. So here is a massively dilated right ventricle. Here is the left ventricle, it's being crushed, okay? So here you know, look, this, this patient, this is the SVC, the IVC, the right atrium, big hole in the right atrial septum. This person had an undiagnosed uh, atrial septal defect that there's flow that goes straight across. Here it is zoomed in, okay? Again, nobody knew this patient had it. We just didn't know why there was so much hypoxemia and RV dysfunction until we saw it. You can't see it on a transthoracic uh, echo. Ventilator-induced hypotension, I can't tell you how many patients are on APRV. Now, there is nothing wrong with APRV, volume control, pressure control. You can blow into them if you want. It makes no difference how you get your ventilation and oxygenation as long as the patient doesn't succumb to what you do to them. Here, the patient we were called for progressive uh, shock state in a patient with ARDS, and when I looked at the patient, I said, let's put the TE probe in, and I told the doc, it's your APRV. No, 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 it can't be, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so as soon as I put them on volume control, here's the right ventricle, there it was before. So we leave the TE probe in, we switch the modes, we see if there's an effect. And then the patient went off of all pressors except for one instead of three, and the patient got better over time. Nothing wrong with APRV. It's just in this patient, the patient didn't like it. So another way of doing it. T is the only possibility to monitor hemodynamic statics in the context of the use of ECMO. So it really, so we use it very much so 
to put our cannulas in. So you can see here, as we're doing it, the wire is curling around a little bit in the right atrium because of this little guy sitting here, which is pissing us off. So then what we do is sometimes we turn the ventilator off, we turn the patient's head to one side, we, do it, we literally pop them off the ventilator for a second, then you can get the wire down into the IVC, and then your cannula goes right across. That's the cannula coming right in to the, uh, to the IVC. And so it's probably the best way to certainly monitor the patient after they're done. It doesn't make a difference how you cannulate, whether it's in an operating room, whether it's in a cardiac cath lab, whether it's on the floor. It's that you have to decide for your group how you're going to put them in and how you're going to monitor them. Uh, we put them in and monitor simply with transesophageal echo. And we do them for everybody. So here's a bubble study that we wanted to figure out what's going on. So put the TE probe in, figure out there's your bubbles, nothing's coming to the other side. In this case, we wanted to see where the distal cannula was. So again, all of these things, everybody can do it differently. You want to bring them to the cath lab and look under floral. You want to have floral at the bedside. You want to bring them to the operating room. You want to use that old dinosaur called the chest x-ray, go right ahead. However you do it is fine, but with, uh, with the T, it allows you to functionally see uh, what's going on. Reason nine, it's quicker and easier to initiate than other monitoring modalities. It is actually less operator dependent, meaning it is harder to figure out how to use a swan than it is to figure out how to do a TEE. There are miniaturized probes now that uh, we were talking about yesterday. You can actually keep in for three days. And it potentially improves ICU performance. What do we mean by that? Well, um, we had one patient on the floor who was going into respiratory failure. They said the patient had positive blood cultures. We, we wanted to bring the patient to the ICU, but then the patient continued to get worse. We intubated the patient on the floor, put the TE probe in, found a humongous vegetation on the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve. I uh, FaceTimed the cardiac surgeon the surgeon looked at it and had the patient in the operating room an hour later. So from the time I met the patient, which was, I think, at like 5 o'clock in the afternoon, to the time that the patient was intubated, lined up, diagnosis made, and in the operating room was two hours. My surgeon didn't need a formal echo. He saw it with his own eyes. Again, that's a little down the line. It's taken years for the cardiac surgeons to understand that medic people have brains because um, you know the surgeons. So, uh, but now that we are all on the same page, it works beautifully. There is no way that someone's going to be diagnosed in an OR in two hours with the regular flow the way things. Yeah, can we have a TE? Well, it's 6 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, but, and the patient's on two pressers. What are you, out of your mind? I mean, again, I don't know what happens. It would just take hours and hours and hours to convince everybody to get uh, to the scene in time. Maybe that's better. I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't have mattered whatsoever if uh, it would have taken six hours. But the patient, 30-year-old with a massive PE who was, uh, who was uh, a, about to give birth, that may, that may matter that you figure it out right away on the patient. The risk of death, I think I was telling some people yesterday, the biggest study showed oh, about, about 10,500 TEs. That was 0.001%, uh, which is pretty low, um, considering how well we kill people with just doing regular procedures. Uh, that's pretty low. Uh, and I say, so it would take 27.4 years to kill anyone in this room if I did a TE on you every day, every single day. That's pretty good. Uh, so, I mean, I hope to be alive in 27.4 years, period. 
So is it accurate? I mean, there's been data since the 90s when the Clintons were in office. Um, there, there's, you know, is there, what's the accuracy? What's the therapeutic impact of non-cardiologists and patients who are in the ICU? And again, I don't want to bore you with all of the slides, but you know, they basically said, okay, we got a clinical problem here. We're going to do a transthoracic echo, just like all you guys said you do. And 60 of those, of those problems were answered immediately, which is great. And then you had, um, you had other things. Problems weren't solved. So then they did a TEE. And out of all of those that weren't solved, 95 of them, they figured out what the problem was. Three of them, they couldn't figure out the problem. And in Europe, if they can't figure out the problem, they just shoot you. So it all goes away. So it, it works out in the end. So everything that they did seemed to suggest that if you know the problem, you can at least address the problem. Again, I keep coming back to that because you can't save everybody. It doesn't matter what modality you have. But at least if you know the problem, it may allow you to figure out what to do. And maybe it allows you to figure out what to do more quickly. Were there complications? No, nobody died from the TEE. Okay, so you know you could say, well, this, that, the other, the patient still died anyway. But what we're saying is, if you can figure out what the problem is, you can at least start the process of moving forward. So, in conclusion, when performed by an experienced echocardiographer, they avoided uh, numerous pitfalls of, hey, let's send them for this thing, let's send them for that thing, let's put this in, let's do that. I mean, the, then uh, our friends, my friend Rob, that was the guy that was speaking at the beginning in the, in the video, they looked at their impact in a medical surgical ICU from 274 patients. Again, same idea. I don't have to bore you with, uh, with this stuff. They basically said, can we figure out what's wrong hemodynamically? Yes, great, we don't need a TEE. No, yes, we need a TEE. And then they went ahead and they looked and see what the, what the indication was. Shock, endocarditis, poor TTE windows, cardiac arrest, ECMO, all the different things that, that you guys see here. And then they, this is their exam. They do four views. They look at LVRV function. They look at, at next to one another. They look at the aorta. They look at the mitral valve. They look to see if there's preload responsiveness. And then they look at the LV in short axis. That's all they did. And by doing that, this is what they found. Some patients needed fluids. Some needed <coughs> ionotropes. Some needed PEEP adjustment. And then, and then all the way down. Uh, they do what we do. They stick the probe in all the time to actually titrate their PEEP. Because you know, as you start to go up on your PEEP, you may, your RV may distend. And if your RV distends, then you're hypotensive. Sometimes when you're trying to recruit somebody, you don't know if the lung is actually recruiting. We actually look with the TEE to see if the lung is recruiting. So there's a lot of things that you can do. They also looked in the emergency room. So in this group, anybody who had cardiac arrest who was intubated, they just threw a TEE probe in to see you know, what the story was. And again, it's no surprise. You see these ambiguous cardiac arrests all the time. You don't know what the hell's going on. And then you put the probe in, you're like, oh, well, there's the answer. And it's nice to know. And again, this is all the different ruled out a cardiac arrest, uh, you know, ruled out a cardiac cause for the arrest, LV dysfunction, aortic dissection they pick up. This was only over like a year. So if you pick up a couple of aortic dissections in a year, that's pretty good. It may save somebody's life if you pick it up very early. Then we talk about how to train people, because that's a big issue. 
right? So this group, again, our friends from the, from the French land, they just looked to see how many studies needed to be done. And they found that about 30 to 35 studies need to be performed before they would consider you uh, to be competent. And you know, they did all these receiver operating, this, that, and the other, technical this, that. Uh, but again, the idea is that a non-cardiologist can learn how to do competent TE 30 to 35 exams in. How do we train our fellows? We have a, a simulator. Each fellow goes through three modules. Each fellow performs 10 complete exams. And then once they do that, they're able to do their first TE. Most of them, as opposed to the 35 exams that it took when you did it de novo without a simulator, they master the exam in 10 to 20 exam, uh, different patient exams because they're already starting to understand how to use it uh, with the simulator. You guys have a simulator. We, we worked at it yesterday. So it's a great way to learn. In fact, the simulator is harder than the real person. The real person is much easier to perform these exams in. Uh, we looked at it in terms of how our fellows did, the feasibility, safety, and utility of this by fellows only. And again, the T information led to a change in many of them about how we were uh, going to mechanically ventilate, whether or not there was too much PEEP, too much tidal volume, whether or not we needed to add an inotrope, fluid management, whether or not we saw an unsuspected pneumonia with a paranemonic effusion that looked complex, whether or not the RV was blown and we found a clot someplace, new or unexpected relevant diagnosis, right? So we did, uh, this group, our fellow did 129, uh, reviewed 129, it was 100% successful, uh, there were no complications, what we mean by an incomplete image set is that you're never going to get all 21 views that we have for every single patient. The question is, can you get the views that are relevant to what you need to do? And the answer to that was yes. And so therapeutic change occurred in 35%. Therapeutic no change occurred in 65%. So the question is, is, that a big, is it a waste of exam to get a normal echo? Absolutely not. It tells you that your shock state has nothing to do with the cardiac function in your patient. Look elsewhere. That's a good feeling if you think about it. So a negative exam is not really a negative exam. It just tells you that the shock is from something else. And so again, we found all these different things. We found everything that you could possibly think you would find in somebody uh, that, that could lead to hemodynamic uh, failure. So uh, I wanted to spend a little bit of time, we're, we're, we don't have that much more, on uh, our, our cannulation. Like I said, all of our ECMO cannulations are done under TE control. Uh, we're even going to be starting to do them for ECMO to go. We have a portable TE probe and a machine that goes. So if we go to cannulate at an outside hospital, we will cannulate there with the TE uh, as well. I know there are a lot of opinions about where patients should be cannulated, and all of them are probably correct, meaning some people feel that they should do it always under fluoro. Some people should be in an operating room. Some people feel they should be in a cath lab. Some people think that they should have a TE probe and fluoroscopy in a cath lab. No one's going to tell you uh, one way is better than the other. I think it has to work for you and your institution. The reason we started doing it this way was out of sheer necessity. We had a, the first few patients we put on ECMO were so damn sick we couldn't move them anywhere. And so we decided we'll put the TE probe in and see how it goes. So now we're 50, 60, uh, 70 patients in, all done with TE. Not all of them were done with TE at the outside hospitals, but certainly the ones that we cannulated in-house were all done. It also depends on who does your cannulations. 
believe me, and you probably know that too. There are some that do a really good job, some do less of a good job, some you don't want doing at all. Uh, this case was uh, where, you know, the, the cer certainly the, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the episodes of Surgeons Gone Wild, but uh, this one was, you know, we started the cannulation and the wire went into the hepatic vein first, which is sitting here. So we said you may want to pull that out. Then the, the wire kept curling up in the right atrium, which is sitting right here. Uh, we said that's, you know, we, again, one of us is watching and telling the surgeon what to do. Uh, then uh, when you move along, uh, here they fi we finally got the wire to come down into, this is the IVC, and you can see the wire sitting in here. So we're all happy the wire's in the IVC. But then somehow, some way, the IVC, now the wire curls all the way down into the right ventricle. And this happens if you guys have seen, especially if you're doing, you guys do a lot of dual cannulas, which I agree is probably, um, we have started doing more of them, but this was going to be an Avalon catheter. And so you can't just push that damn wire in. You just can't do that. You have to know where the wire is uh, at all times. So this one went down, the patient went into VTAC. We said you should probably pull the wire out a little bit. We moved forward a little bit more. And now the cannula went in, and the cannula, which is right here, was stuck up against the right atrial wall. And so I said, okay, we, we got to either abort this mission and go two cannulas, or we, I got to see the wire. The, it's got to get into the IVC. So she pushed the wire in, and it's, oh, it's going easy. It's going easy. And then I noticed that it was going easy, but it was going all the way down into the right ventricle. And it was going easy. It was going easy. And then the next thing I know, if I can get over here, we have this. This is a pericardial effusion. So as we're doing the cannulation, I said, well, now I know why your wire went in well and easily, because it perforated. And as we're doing it, now we have a, a coagulum that's pushing on the left ventricle. The patient is becoming hypotensive. And so uh, she says, I think we need to bring the patient to the operating room. I said, that may not be a bad idea, but maybe we ought to finish the cannulation so at least we, uh, you have uh, circuitry running. So we quickly did that, and you can see beautifully, this is the right atrium that's right here, and this is the flow. It's flowing perfectly. Everything got better, except this is a huge pericardial effusion. Then, to make matters worse, the, when they were putting the... Uh, finally hooking up to the circuit. I guess they didn't push it on just hard enough. And so I let them know that when you see that, that is air that's being entrained from up top where the cannula was. Uh, and it beautifully outlines, this is the right ventricle, the pulmonary artery comes all the way around. I said, hold on Houston, we have a problem here. So then we would clamp, figure out where it was. We finally figured out that it was up here. So they called the operating room, but uh, as they were trying to figure that out, I said, this has to come out. So I just stuck a needle in the chest, and then this is right before the patient went to the operating room. You can see we got rid of the entire, this is the transthoracic view. I got rid of the pericardial effusion. Blood pressure came up. Patient went to operating room. Patient's actually listed now for a lung transplant. So thank God that it didn't cause uh, irreversible uh, damage to the patient. So 
what the what M and M's are great, and uh, it depends on which side of the M you like to stand on, because you know at M and M's, if the person before has a preconceived notion that they don't like you and think you're terrible, then they're going to use everything they can to tell you why you should never do that again. And if you have people on the other side of the M that say, "Hey, man, it was just a mistake." then they're going to try to defend you and say you can do it again. I just sit in the middle because I kind of like listening to the banter back and forth. I think that um, some people will argue you should never put an Avalon catheter in without using fluoroscopy if you're going to do it. I think that, yes, fluoroscopy always shows you pretty much where your wire is, except when you push it in and hit a wall, and then the next thing you know, it feels easy. Yeah, you'll see it with the fluoroscopy. It'll be wrapping around the pericardial sac. So. So yes, I think that you always have to go back and ask yourself, should you do it that way? I personally am going back to the two cannula system because I kind of like it uh, better. But what it allows you to do is to see the stuff in real time. We had two crazy disasters. Let's see if uh, this one, see that? This is the right atrium. Okay, so during cannulation with a dual cannula system, if you ever wonder if whatever your patients ever crash after you start them on ECMO, well, this is the second one where we saw a thrombus in transit occur during ECMO cannulation. So the patient had hypoxemic respiratory failure from whatever, ARDS, this, that, and the other. And then to boot, this humongous thing comes flying into view while we're doing the TEE. And then the patient needed to get TPA immediately under TEE guidance, and we figured out uh, what the problem was. This was a 65-year-old, hypoxemic, infiltrates, shock. The TTE showed us something here. We weren't sure what was going on. If this is old, is it just someone who's older and has mitral valve you know, annular calcification? So again, we put in the TE probe. And again, I'm not going to bore you with everything, but this is a humongous vegetation sitting on this valve, on this valve, and that's a root abscess. So again, and this is severe AI. So again, the patient comes in, and within a few hours, we basically said, she's going to die. And, and I, know, I mean that in a very humble manner, meaning no one's taken to the operating room, that's going to rupture, and at least it allows the family to, give a, you know, to say, look, there's nothing we can do here. We made the, pal the patient palliative care, and the patient you know, passed away. But that may not be the case for everybody. You want to make these diagnoses as quickly as possible. Here was someone with a septic knee, 78-year-old male, blood cultures positive, respiratory failure shock, you know, the whole bit. T, we did a T right up front, no vegetations. Day four, mental status worse, persistent cultures. And now you're going to start to see on the valve, right? Let's see if I can, ah. If you see here, now we have, if you watch carefully, this thing flicking off up in this area. So what happened? This patient threw a septic emboli. And again, what I did is I called the surgeon, showed him the films. The patient went to the operating room you know, that afternoon and removed the valve, which grew M MRSA or whatever the case uh, may be. This person, lung cancer, shock, hypoxemia, DVT, humongous right-sided process with the DVT. That's a PE until proven otherwise. So we gave the patient uh, TPA, and the patient got better because there were no transthoracic windows. Here are the views. So you can see there's a Ding of the septum right here. There's a humongous right ventricle. So we gave the patient, but then two days later, the shock occurred again. The patient still had a DVT. So everybody's like, well, it must be another massive PE. 
stuck the probe back in, but now the right ventricle is working much better than it did before. The left ventricle has very little evidence of deing of the septum. Turned out the patient was just developing a nosocomial sepsis. So again, you know, may not what happened one time may not happen uh, the other time. So we're glad we didn't give TPA uh, again. Chest pain to the back, right? I guess you can figure out here. Here's your dissection that we found. This is uh, the, the aortic view. You can see all these things dancing. That is a dissection uh, that is occurring. Again, you can see it you know, sort of flopping around in here. And then here is your dissection plane. Again, patient had poor echo windows. Uh, they said the patient can't get a CTA because of the creatinine, which seems absurd to me. Uh, I would never do that if a patient's in the ED and you're worried about a dissection. Please go ahead and for I will forgive you if you give me contrast for my kidneys. Uh, so, you know, patient ended up, again, going to the operating room immediately. So the question you have to ask yourself, okay, is are you going to be a scared little chihuahua? Uh, or are you going to tell your MICU director who's right back there, standing there, sitting there, you guys want to be a Roddy, and you want to take control of your patients and not let other people tell you why there's hemodynamic compromise. And uh, I guess... Uh, I think that's the last side. Ah, is there utility? And I have heard all the excuses. Is it dangerous? No. Is it hard to learn? No. Can non-cardiologists master the technique? Yeah. Is there data that it helps? Yes. Can it save lives? Yes. Should old dogs learn new tricks? Obviously. Should cardiologists stop you from performing it? No. So therefore, the Beastie Boys said it right, right? You gotta fight for your right to do a TE party. And uh, I think that's it, that's it, yeah. So anybody have any questions? I'm terrible. I don't even ask, usually, are they on aspirin, plavix, anticoagulation? They could be on Coumadin. They could be bleeding from some other orifice. It's as long as it's not an esophageal varix that is uh, bleeding at the time that you put it in. It is one of the safest procedures. If you think about it, patients get cardioverted via TE after they're on anticoagulation. So it's a very safe procedure, as long as you're not ramming the thing in, you know, as long as it goes in smooth, which we usually use a uh, glide scope, if there's any hesitation as to getting the probe in, we'll just use the glide scope, which allows you to see easily the posterior pharynx and where the esophagus is, and we just put it in. So the answer to your question is they can be on aspirin, plavix, and heparin at the same time that we're doing the TE. And the next question that you haven't asked, asked yet, but you're thinking about it is, you're absolutely right, other clinical providers besides medical doctors are going to be doing TEEs, including NPs and PAs. I know you're thinking that. Okay, questions, comments? So, so we have a lot of patients uh, in liver failure here who have esophageal varices that have been previously banded but are not actively bleeding. Will you place a TEE in those situations? So, uh, great question. Uh, what I do in those situations is typically I will have the GI doc come and we have a conversation with them. And they usually ask me really important questions like, is this really necessary? 
And if the answer is yes, then they do one of two things. They either say go right ahead because the likelihood of you causing a massive bleed is low, or they will put a probe in and see what's going on uh, just to make sure that the, everything seems okay. And thirdly, then they stand there and make sure that I don't cause a problem and they can actually fix it. It all comes down to, in my mind, what is the necessity of your procedure? If you're looking for endocarditis, but you already got them on antibiotics, you don't know if the, the cultures are going to clear, and they're having a GI bleed, is it really necessary to do that TEE right then and there? On the other hand, if the person, the surgeon, is waiting to wheel the patient to the operating room for, because you don't want to have another stroke, then it's probably worth the risk. So that's how I try to do everything that I do. I look at the risk-benefit uh, ratio, and I go. Yeah, so credentialing and certification are entirely different things. Credentialing is a hospital policy. Certification is a society uh, policy. So you don't have to be credential, you don't have to be certified in anything to get credentialing in your hospital, and you can have all the certification you want and not get credentialed in your hospital. In general, it is becoming harder and harder, harder, becoming harder to deny credentialing in an individual who has taken either the NBE basic transesophageal echo, or now we have our the NBE through all of us, we've developed the advanced critical care echo certification. So it will become harder and harder for institutions to deny credentialing when that occurs, but they still can deny it. So your competency has nothing to do with credentialing, and your certification has nothing to do with credentialing. I think it's, an, it's, it's a hospital policy. Right now, what we do is I am a, my partners are able to credential, credential anybody we want to do TEE in the, in the ICUs because we've been credentialed, and that's how we've set it up in our hospital. Would you mandate that you take the exam before doing the, uh, the exam? The, the studies. I wouldn't mandate anything. I think eventually, personally, our group thinks that, uh, first of all, basic critical care ultrasound should be part and parcel of all critical care programs, and you shouldn't be able to leave your program until you are competent in performing it, because we think of it as any basic skill. If you're going to know how to intubate, do a bronchoscopy, you should know how to do critical care ultrasound. So that's one thing. The second thing is we believe, I don't even get consent for TEs anymore most of the time, because I just feel that it's that important in the, in the actual care of a critically ill patient. So no, I think you have to know where you're going to be working. And you should ask those people what it will take for you to become credentialed and allow them. But certainly, it doesn't hurt to take the exam. I just don't know if it's necessary. Okay, it's, it's, it, it, it may be necessary, but it certainly is not sufficient in many hospital systems. You may have all the certification you want, and they're not going to give you credentialing becoming harder because it's becoming harder to run from the truth. You know, usually credentialing boards, after a while, they have to rely on some level of truth, which is it ain't that uh, it's not dangerous for people. It's easy to learn, and it may help. And it will become standard of care. Yeah? Uh, what kind of proceeds in your unit? So we have, we have four Sonosite uh, M-Turbo machines. So we use the probes that uh, go on to those machines. But just like 
and full metal jacket, someone can say, this is my rifle, and there are many rifles like it, but this one is mine. They're all the same. They all should shoot bullets. So um, the, all TE probes that are not the mini probes, all of the same buttons and same stuff. Some are a tiny bit bigger, some are a tiny bit smaller, some are white, some are gray. It all depends on the interface of the machine. And they all cost about the same. They're all around $30,000, $40,000, whether you're going to put them on a big GE or Phillips machine or whether they're going to go on, a, uh, on an M-Turbo. They're all about the same. Yeah. How, uh, so you're using the screen that in a pre-modern education. How long are you performing each exam or are you keeping the same? I know you were saying you were changing ventilator settings, but how long are you keeping the program? So there have been some patients that I've kept them in for hours. I just keep the thing in there, do whatever it is, and then pull out later. There are other patients, if the exam takes all of five or 10 minutes, I pull it out to get it clean, and if I need to do it again, I just put it back in. So it all depends on you know, why we're doing it. So, all right, you're welcome. <laughs>